Hello and welcome to the Fix the Future show, the podcast where we explore how investors can do good while also making good money. I'm Algie Hall, investment editor of Fix the Future, and today I'm joined by the fantastic Ben Yo, senior portfolio manager at RBC Blue Bay, where his team is responsible for $30 billion. Ben is not only someone who's been integrating what is today known as ESG into his work for over two decades, and he's won awards for his efforts. He is also an award-winning playwright, a director, a podcaster, and a performer in his excellent one-man show, Thinking Bigly. You can get more details in the show notes. Ben is also someone who I think it's fair to say has written the book on ESG, as he's the co-author of the textbook for the CFA ESG certificate. Hello, Ben. Hi, thank you. Thank you for coming. Um, I thought um, we could maybe start talking kind of at the beginning um, and find out, you know, what it was which originally got you interested in the ESG and um, how you've seen attitudes change between then and now. Sure. So thinking about ESG today, it's probably worth going back, way back in time to set the scene. And then I'll talk about how I came to it and how attitudes have changed. It starts a very long time ago. In fact, you could probably go back to Babylonian times, but I'm going to just fast forward to Cicero. And Cicero is one of the first people who thinks about markets, how you should exchange value and thinking about that. And Cicero was a really big influence on the people who first became first thinkers around capitalism and free markets, notably um, Adam Smith, but a lot of other thinkers too. And you get a lot of this from Jacob Sowell's book on this type of account. And from that, you kind of fast forward. And what you find is that a lot of what we now call ESG, environmental social governments, comes in what people have described as various tribes or various flavors. And actually, there's an analogy to this in terms of, say, something like value investing. If you say, oh, I'm a value investor, the next type of question normally comes is what type of value investor? Because there's now many flavors of value investor, even though you might be in the same sort of bucket. And that's the same for a lot of ESG type of things. Um, it's been described as tribes, a lot of things. Uh, people sometimes look at thematics, some look at exclusion, some look at integrating uh, and that type of stuff. Anyway, so we went from Adam Smith all the way into the 1990s, and you started getting these concepts of people, planet, profit. So this idea that you're looking at the value of people, the value of your natural capital, of your planet, and the long-term value in terms of cash flows, in terms of profit. But around about that time, you also had other tribes, which had probably had their roots closer to religious and values thinking, which all went back to the Quakers, but actually in some ways went back to Cicero. And these sets of people were thinking around these sort of things in terms of value. So today you have, for instance, you can invest along Catholic values or you can invest along Sharia values or certain charitable values like that. And that was thought of around a sort of more ethical way of thinking or a values-based as opposed to just long-term value. So coming back to when I started over 20 years ago, I concentrate a lot in terms of healthcare investing. And healthcare is kind of very interesting because most people will agree that we all want to live longer and with a higher quality of health. So there's a huge consensus, whether you're mainstream, ESG, left, right, up and down, that health is a valuable long-term good. And I was very involved at that time with the projects of looking at 
HIV drugs to Africa in terms of getting good access to healthcare. And long story short, there were a lot of, uh, in the end, public, public, private, private type of partnerships in order to get that project going. And today you have cheap or generic um, HIV drugs, which go around Africa, often on the back of beer and Coca-Cola trucks. And so that was one of the first times of looking at the fact that on a multi-stakeholder engagement, you had what was essentially, from my point of view, a kind of win-win situation. All of the stakeholders seemed to be doing well from it, and the value was accruing to everyone in that pie. So to use, again, a phrase that a lot of people have been using in terms of the idea of growing the pie, but for social and other type of stakeholders as well, as well as private and shareholders, that came to be. And being very influenced from that, I then joined advisory and non-exec roles in what came to be known as ESG, while often doing a lot of my healthcare investing. And um, I, I think you, you wrote a really great um, FT op-ed almost five years ago to the day, at least it was published five years ago to the day almost. And um, you, de you described um, fund managers' eyes glazing over at the, with the, when this CEO was talking about the purpose in his company. The challenges and why uh, a bunch of fund managers would remain skeptical today is that CEOs are very well trained to do their messaging. Obviously, they're promoting either themselves or their company. And so when you think of a lot around slogans, around corporate purpose and the like today, there is a, a range of cynicism and skepticism, but probably rooted in the truth that some of it is what we call puff and waffle or corporate greenwashing or, or whatever. You talk about, well, there's no particular uh, purpose on that. It's, it's just a nice slogan. On the other hand, there is some evidence that having a strong sense of purpose or a strategy where you get together, say your employees use the awful accounting term of, of human capital and you're on a mission, means that you get highly engaged employees who are more productive and who do more for you. When you're thinking that you're striving from something more, and you see this within the healthcare domain a lot, if you feel that you're helping to save people's lives, and you can question rightly or wrongly whether you think you're really doing that, you go over and above, and that gives you an extra source of, say, off-balance sheet asset again, to use this um, uh, accounting term. So some fund, fund managers will look at that and be very skeptical and have some of it rooted in truth, but maybe they might miss a company which is really having a strong corporate purpose or really does have really valuable and engaged um, uh, humans and employees and strong human capital or social capital, intellectual capital, or all of, all of these other things. And so that is where potentially uh, things could be missed. You ask, are fund managers or are investors ahead of corporates? Well, again, I think there's a range of uh, stakeholders and, and values here. Some fan, fund managers certainly would like to think of themselves as ahead, thinking about long-term value, thinking about the long-term more. They would argue, oh, we're very long-term investors. Corporate are too short-minded and short-sighted and only thinking about quarterly earnings. However, some corporates would also lay that charge of certain other sets of investors. And investors are very mixed, a very heterogeneous group. So you might say, well, you're looking at quantitative investors or these hedge fund managers are only looking at the week or only looking at the quarter. They're asking us to cut R&D or long-term investment. They're asking us to cut people. And these are the long-term drivers of excess of, or, of our values. And I think there are there's some evidence of, of things uh, of that as well. So I think there's elements of truth uh, to all of that. And then when you think about it, like, well, are we really far ahead or not? Some corporates would also say, well, we're looking at these other values. Maybe we're looking at 
uh, improving something else that might not impact cash flows in the short term. We're thinking about impacting cash flows in the long term. Some investors, depending on their time horizon or what their actual clients want, may or may not uh, agree with that. And then you have different types of investors as well. So when a debt investor is looking at a company, they're obviously more interested in bankruptcy and risk to the balance sheet. And when an equity investor, they're more interested in growing that equity value, the shareholder value, maybe in terms of acquisition or innovation. And a debt investor might look at something and go, well, that's too much risk to the balance sheet. I don't see any particular benefit to me as a debt investor. All I want is my loan back and I'm already being paid my coupon or my interest rate. Whereas an equity investor will go, well, actually, that looks like a really good shot on goal for a huge amount of value and growth. Might not be 100%, but my probability of the success of that looks really good. That's something that I'd want to take. So again, in something which would be a mainstream example, you actually have debt and equity investors on the other side of that decision. Um, I mean, you, you, you've, you've touched upon something there, which... Um... I think, you know, it's hugely interesting, in which I've heard you talk about before, which is this idea of ESG as um, being extra financial um, factors, um, which kind of are not, not seen when you look at a company's accounts. Um, I was just wondering if you can um, explain how you um, try and get to grips with those ideas, which kind of seem very um, hard to, you know, put numbers and things like that on. Let's start thinking first about it strategically before we think about quantifying it. If you think of the fact that a company can potentially overborrow from one of these sources of extra financial capital from one of its stakeholders, so you can think of, it's not like overborrowing from the bank, but you can borrow from the environment by not cleaning up after yourself. You can borrow from the future by not investing in R&D. You can borrow from your community by antisocial work hours or borrow from your customer from poor customer service or borrow from your employees by cutting training and benefits and their salary. If you think about all of those borrowings, a lot of them could raise cash flow, say, in the short term. In the quarter that you cut employees' salaries, your cash flow will go up. And in fact, that might look good for sales and margins and earnings. But if you think about it, particularly if it was unfair, then your employees are not going to be happy. And typically, your best employees will probably leave. They will probably uh, say, don't go and work for this uh, company, and you will have destroyed long-term value. So one way of thinking about that is you've created a kind of extra financial contingent liability, something which doesn't appear on the cash flow balance sheet, but is going to impact negatively in the future. If you think that's true about a negative value or risk, you can see how the opposite would also be true. So if you're investing in the future, investing in your people, investing in natural capital, you're creating a kind of extra financial contingent asset. Maybe you could call that an ESG asset, which is going to produce future value over the long term. And again, doesn't appear in the cash flow and balance sheet. One of the important aspects of the fact that it doesn't readily appear in the cash flow and balance sheet is that it becomes a hard to measure element. So one could argue, oh, well, it's difficult to measure, it's difficult to manage, maybe we can't really value it. On the other hand, something which is less transparent and hard to get to, particularly for an active manager, might be a source of an inefficient market. It's not efficiently assessed, there's not all of that information around, and so that could be a source of edge, being better risk return or better alpha. There's another element to think about this. So one is on this transparency piece, and one is the fact that the world has become more intangible. There are more of these kind of intangible 
human capital, intellectual capital type of assets. This is very well articulated in a book by Stian Westlake and Jonathan Haskell on intangible capital, uh, capitalism uh, without capital. And this really documents that if you look at the last hundred years, in fact, arguably, if you look at the last thousand to two thousand years, we've gone from a lot of companies and in fact, a lot of countries from being quite tangible rich. So widgets, property, land, factories and the like to a state of the economy, which is very intangible rich. So you're talking about software, brands, processes, social capital, intellectual capital, relationship capital and the like. And there's some evidence, which if you look back, if you go back to the 1950s, maybe the majority of the value of a company and maybe even the majority value of a country in terms of GDP was in its tangible capital. If you fast forward today, there's quite a lot of evidence that the majority of the value widely defined of a country or even a company is in a intangible capital. So it's ideas, it's processes, it's people. You have even something you think of as a very tangible business, say something like a gym. So you think a gym, well, that's all about the weighing machines and it's the, it's the venue and things. And obviously those are important. But today it's about the personal trainer, the music, the branding, the software that you use to get people in, the marketing. In fact, the gym machines, which might appear on your balance sheet, are probably some of the lowest part of the value in, in terms of the overall pie. And if you were going to buy a gym, or a set of gyms, you'd actually be looking at that branding, you'd be looking at the relationships, you'd be looking at the software and all of those types of things. You'd probably not be looking or spending so much time on the gym machines. And so that's one of the things that I think has been slowly dawning. It's now quite obvious to most economists that this world has moved to a much more intangible world. It just so happens that a lot of the intangible world, you could reclassify if you wanted to talk about um, extra financial or ESG tribe under an ESG tribe. So governance, G, everything to do with management, those are management processes. Um, environmental is natural capital, social kind of human capital. Maybe that's also where you think about your ideas. You may or may not include R&D in that. So the ability to assess all of this intangible capital and intangible investment is therefore really important for forward-looking value. As an aside as well, it seems to be a lot of economists to think, although there's a bit of a debate around this, that this intangible investment piece may be a part explanation. It might even be a very large part of the explanation for the productivity puzzle that we have here in the UK and the world, because you can show that actually, even though you think about great financial crisis and all of these types of things, that the rate of intangible investment has been falling over the last decade or two, notwithstanding some of the advances we've now had in AI and biotech and the like. And actually this lower amount of intangible investment may be part of the productivity piece. So partly it's hard to measure and hard to, uh, to, to manage, but you can see that investment in, in people and software and all of these things have given us quite large uh, returns and gains. And if that has been falling over the last decade or two, that might explain part of the productivity puzzle that we're having at the moment. Yeah. I mean, it's it's fascinating, and also I I, th I find it such a um, a powerful way to you know explain what ESG is about. Um, I, I I suppose um, you know one one of the ultimate goals, if you could quantify it, would be um, because a lot of the spending on intangibles it's just classed as a cost rather than an asset. It leads to systemic understatement of certain companies' earnings, which I suppose is, you know, if you're going to get all financy, that's the root of what you're looking at. But it also strikes me, um, it's incredibly hard to measure. And measurement is a big thing which um, 
people have been trying to do with ESG, say, saying that ESG has a positive impact on share price performance. And um, I was just really curious about your ideas on it, not least because um, you studied natural sciences at Cambridge, which is, um, as I understand it, very interested in actually measuring things and saying, is there any veracity in the way these uh, you know, things are being measured? So the measurement challenge is really interesting and has many elements to it, quite a lot of them which haven't been resolved. I will again take you back in history to the history of accounting and to double book entry keeping. And in fact, actually, there's a historic uh, French minister, Colbert, and quite famously, around about France, there was a lot of issues around budget and budget transparency in order to know what the state of affairs are. So a lot of the roots of accounting and this idea of further transparency is that where you have accountability, where you can see cash flows being spent or not, where you can measure and manage, then you can hold those people, whether that's the company or your monarch or your government, to account. And if you can't see where that's going or if your accounting isn't very good, you simply don't really know what's going on. So if you look at the history of accounting, it's taken as many, many, many years to settle on generally accepted uh, accounting principles, otherwise known as GAAP. And even around that, you actually have different GAAPs. So you have US GAAP, you kind of used to have more Japanese GAAP, you now have IFRS, International Financial Reporting Standards. And you can move between these gaps and you can find when you move between these different sorts of gaps, you can actually get swings of hundreds of millions to billions of dollars in what you thought was your balance sheet cash or cash and cash equivalents. So even accountants today cannot quite agree what is the cash that you have on your balance sheet or not. But still, the idea of where you have these more transparencies or where companies are being more transparent is there is some notion that you can hold the companies to account and actually then other stakeholders and particularly investors may grant you lower cost of capitals or lower costs of debts because we feel that the transparency and management are better. So that is one line of thought. And there is some evidence from accounting that this is true, that the better um, accounting uh, measurements and metrics we have, there's some evidence that companies have had lower cost of capital and lower uh, cost of debt. So you put this into some of the extra financial type of accounting. And there is a little bit of evidence that this is true as well. I think the work has been done by Christian Lawyer out of Chicago, where he's looked at some of the accounting for some of these extra financial uh, factors. And again, the data is a little bit contested. I don't think there is a consensus within the academic circles, but there is certainly some evidence that some of this ESG and ESG related data has impacted cost of capital. There is then a whole other set of theory of change is that if you do all of these things and you manage them really well, so this is separate from the accounting and transparency piece, that that may lower your cost of capital or rise your cost of capital as well. This is heavily contested. So there's some academics which basically say, no, there is no evidence of this. And there are some that say there is some evidence uh, for this around. So in academia, it is contested. I think practitioners think that maybe certain companies do benefit and certain companies don't. So in which case, you're never really going to get um, this academically um, uh, resolved. There is then yet another uh, theory of change or idea around here is that it's not so much to do with your cost of capital 
how much it's going to uh, charge you for your debt or equity or, or where you're going to go forward or what discount rate you're going to use for your cash flows, but actually impacts your forward-looking cash flows themselves. So if you think back to my example of people, so again, this is a toy example, but if you consider that you have got really great and productive people, all other things being equal, and you've got another company exactly the same with people who are just simply not as productive or not as engaged, or you've got higher employee turnover rates, so you're keeping your people less and they've got less training and processes, all of this type of thing. Well, the company with the more productive employees are likely to produce stronger cash flows in the future. So it's not that their cost of capital is the same, it's actually that their margin structure and future cash flows um, are better. So that's, again, one of the theories of change uh, around that. There are some people who work on engagement and there are these other tribes as well, as I talked about, which might be looking at uh, momentum within ESG or they might be looking at, at values or things and the like. I think when you come to think about it, there is a phrase uh, which actually I think came across a sociologist and is misascribed to Einstein all the time around um, what's countable and what's not and that what can count is not often uh, not often what counts and what's countable is not often something that you really want to count. And so there is this measurement problem, but it doesn't necessarily mean that strategically you don't know what the right thing is to do. And it perhaps also doesn't mean that you won't be able to count or measure it itself. So this idea of human capital or how productive your employees are or things, there are things that are difficult to measure around it, but there are measurements around culture and you can get some sort of view. And obviously it's, it's really super important. So I kind of think that actually in general, you can probably these measure these things to a larger degree than perhaps people think. And I also think that even if you can't measure them, you still know what to do in terms of managing them. And you can still actually assess or analyze many of these factors to some degree. Maybe it doesn't help in some forms of quantitative uh, investing, which we could maybe uh, come on to, but it certainly can help with other forms of investing. And I mean, also that that question about quantitative investing, because um, I mean, there, there is um, the people who create ESG factors and then test them or, or things which are similar. And then there are all the rating agencies who um, have these uncorrelated ESG scores and things like that. I mean, how, how useful are these kind of um, big overarching numbers which are put on these very complicated ideas, which, um, I mean, if, when, when you talk about them, you know, it strikes me that they need, everything needs a lot of interpretation and um, deep understanding really to, for it to be valuable. That question itself might be a whole podcast series <laughs> in itself. Uh, and I think you ask it in two or three different parts. So when you think about ESG as a factor understood by quantitative investors, uh, you actually have to understand what we mean by factor investing and where it's come from and what its meaning is. So for instance, there is something that quantitative investors call the value factor. In fact, there's a classic, again, from the academic literature, a four-factor model, which has got a reasonable consensus uh, around it. And value tends to be uh, one of those factors. We also look at other factors which are very common, momentum, quality, size, and the like. It just so happens that uh, some of these factors do not quite have a universal definition. So for instance, value factor, tends to be something to do with price to book 
and price to earnings. But actually different investors weight it differently and have different interpretations of what that might be. And in fact, today, some investors also will re-account or reclassify that to account for intangible value or things like that. So within that. So in fact, even when you look at a value factor, there is some debate as to what it actually is. Then if you have actually defined it, there is certainly debate today as to how well the value factor works or not. There are some people who argue based on a more recent track record of five to 10 years that classical value factors are not quote unquote working very well. So for working very well, as in they haven't made very much uh, money from it. Others will argue, well, if you look at a, a long term or you do some of these um, adjustments, that actually the value factor has been working just fine. So in much the same way that you could argue, like, does ESG, again, ESG is a really uh, bad shorthand now for that, for a whole set of complicated clusters of issues and, and opportunities. But say we use it as a shorthand. Again, we don't really know what is the type of ESG we're talking about. We don't even know what the type of value that we're looking at. And actually, if you look at all of those classic factors, quality, momentum, size, value. There's a huge debate both amongst practitioners and the academics. Do they work forward looking? Have they worked in the last five years? What sort of factors would make them work and, and how is it? Those are what we call uh, factors or defined factors. In a quantitative model, you have um, a big set of your portfolio, which is not necessarily factorizable. And that residual part of your portfolio, quantitative people tend to call that idiosyncratic or residual. It's the stuff that they don't factorize, either with the four-factor model or sophisticated quantitative investors today have many, many more factors within, within the model, and they're left with this kind of residual. So now the question is, how much of ESG can you make into a certain kind of factor? And how much would you say is idiosyncratic or residual, and there is no consensus agreement around that. So the issue is, if you ask, oh, is ESG a factor, or can ESG as a factor have this? The fact is you have no consensus on what that factor should be. Now, there is some evidence that some people have looked at certain elements of this, say a governance score or an employee score or something like that, and that's been added into it. And some people say that's neutral, some people have said, oh, it's added a little bit, but there's been huge debates over the, the robustness of that data, how long it's been running for, and whether it will be valid anyway into the future. Even if you've had a long run data, maybe something about uh, the structure has changed. That's on the element that you think is factorizable. And I think there's a conclusion that uh, there, is, there is no consensus on that factorizable element. And so then when you look at the residual or the Indian syncretic, to what extent can you call some of these things so-called idiosyncratic ESG? So these would be factors which are, say, specific to a company. So one other way you'd say this within equity investing is in terms of talking about stock-specific risk or stock-specific um, idiosyncraticness. And there you could say, well, say I have a company in the US which has got 2,000 people and I've got a company in the UK with 2,000 people. So company size is something that you could agree might be a factor. Maybe that's a small company or however your uh, definition is and can go into the factor bucket. But the corporate culture, say, of those two companies 
or something else about it which you could claim as an extra financial or in, intangible. Maybe it's something ESG, but we call it corporate culture that comes under S. And maybe there's some sort of agreement that one of those is bad and one of those is good. Evidenced by maybe high employee turnover rate, maybe evidenced by very bad um, scores when you're looking at third party scores in terms of uh, employees, maybe some sort of, of survey on that. That is specific to the company and may well do poorer performance. Now, that isn't a factorizable element that is easy done from quantitative ones because it's idiosyncratic. So it falls into their residual and idiosyncratic bucket. So finishing on the question of is ESG a factor and uh, can, it be, uh, can it be used for long-term profit? Is consensus is way out. There is no <laughs> agreement on that. And I hear from some of my quantitative uh, frenemies that they have uh, some factors that they put in, which they believe do add value, and that you might be able to classify under an extra financial or ESG framework if you so wished, because they are these extra financial. But if they really work, you probably aren't going to tell anyone because you don't want uh, that to be uh, uh, efficiently assessed. Then there was a third part to your question, which was uh, ESG uh, rating agencies. And the issue here is in the name of a rating agency. And so some people, when they come to this, first of all, think, oh, well, is a rating agency some sort of quote unquote ESG fact? And there are some things around extra financial information, which may be towards the factual. So say you're looking at the carbon emissions of a company. Uh, and often we talk about scope one or scope two or scope three, but scope one is kind of more your direct emissions. And say you are measuring that, so you're not estimating it. And again, actually, if you look at this, there's even a vast range of estimations when a, a company report on it. So that would be a piece of environmental data that there is some agreement on what it is. Say you've got a figure of uh, a million tons of carbon or you put that into an intensity. So you've got 50, millions, uh, 50 million tons of carbon uh, per million uh, dollars of sales. Well, that is a piece of data, but the rating agency or any other sort of uh, third party would have to say, is that good or is that bad? Now that is an opinion. And you can see, you could show that as the same if you're using a so-called financial ratio. If I told you that company X has a return on equity of 8% or 10% or even 12%, that doesn't actually, in isolation, tell you very much. And then if you were to rate that as a return on equity piece along with everything else, that would be an opinion on something based on the piece of data. So a lot of the rating agencies around ESG are really a little bit more like investment broker uh, opinions than they are uh, data facts. And in fact, um, most of the rating agencies that I've heard speak about this will agree with this. They are giving opinions. They're also sometimes doing uh, these pieces of data sorting. One of the complications here, one of the issues is that credit ratings, which are looking at mostly financial ratios, but not all, they look at extra financial uh, and other things as well. And they also do this around sovereigns and things like that. Uh, there is generally a reasonably high agreement your correlations tend to be in the 0 0.8, 0 0.9, or even above the 0 0.9 range. And there tends to be a consensus about what the end point is to do with uh, risk of bankruptcy or something like this, or a sovereign uh, default, uh, rate, um, default rate. 
Whereas on the equity side for ESG rating agencies, uh, there is no such consensus. So there's no consensus as to what you're actually rating or giving uh, an opinion on, as in one rating agency will differ from another. So they're not uh, comparable. And then when you're looking at an overall score, if you're doing a score out of 100, so some sort of point system, or you're doing a score as a letter, double A, double B, uh, something uh, like that. And you're trying to translate that even into something which is an equal point score. Uh, to your point, uh, the correlations are very mixed depending on where you have that. Uh, they can they can be 0.1, 0.2, 0.3. They can go up again depending on the factors. And then you also have the complication, as you alluded to, is that you might be looking at some quite complicated piece of data and you are scoring it into a relatively simple point or number. And then you're rolling that into something which says you are 83 or even better, you're 83.546 out of 100. What does that really mean? So going back to the natural scientist and me, first of all, that's too many discipline points. Like that's kind of meaningless. And secondly, is that actually even the 85 out of 100, there is not very much informational value left in that because it's been rolled up by so many more complex uh, data points. There is something and then different people can, can use it. So I guess particularly for the institutional uh, investor, we are using these as opinions to inform our own investment process. Um, what do you think about the regulatory efforts to try and, um, uh, you know, define what, you know, is acceptable as sustainable or, you know, labelling funds and investment as sustainable? As a global investor, we look at global regulations. And one of the observations that I have is that there are challenges between whether regulations are different and whether you might have uh, regulatory divergence. So last year, there was a big debate. In fact, there's still an ongoing debate um, that the SEC wanted some aspects of uh, climate-related uh, disclosures. In the UK and Europe, we already have some sort of climate-related uh, disclosures. In Europe, you've got a lot of things around uh, regulation in this area, sustainable uh, finance regulation. And the UK currently, via the FCA, is consulting on various labels to do with uh, sustainability. If you take a very high level view, there are two or three challenges that regulators are looking at or need to look at. So one is a very classic split between a so-called uh, retail investor, say the woman in the pub, or the institutional investor who is meant to be more sophisticated. So the lady in the pub may not know some of these complexities around ESG ratings or factor and investing and the like. But let's hope that most institutional investors who've been doing this for a while will know some of this. Again, some investors may disagree, but there is the knowledge is out there about institutional land on that. So quite rightly, you might want a different set of regulations for if you're a sophisticated investor for then if you're a retail investor. And the FCA is looking at this particularly to, to protect a retail investor where they may look at a fund and they go, oh, we wouldn't have expected to see such and such a sector, say oil and gas or tobacco within a fund which is labeled with such and such a name because that doesn't align with a kind of a person in the street type of uh, thinking around that. But an institutional investor or someone who's doing this kind of due diligence should really know the investment process or thinking uh, uh, around that. So that's one of the challenges around uh, the regulatory landscape. The other challenge, which perhaps economists might argue is more important, 
is what we talk about in terms of real world impact or going things into the real world. So the financial world obviously intersects with the real world very, very closely, but it is the money side of things. It is not the actual carbon emissions. It's not the actual business. It's not the actual people. And here, when you look at forward looking, you want to say in an ideal world, you want to mobilize capital, whether that's debt, equity, or other forms of capital, even people and ideas. And you want to put that towards long-term value generating um, aspects of the world. So this might be to do with climate and natural capital. This might be to do health and how you might live longer. This might be to do with education. This might be to do with all of the things that human beings and all of their glory really value in terms of what it means to be human and to live a good life. And if you think about that, and particularly maybe say if you think about the climate lens, you want that capital be allocated that way. And so you might have some definition of what you want to call green or some sort of taxonomy. One of the complications around this, though, is if you have a narrow definition of something which, say, is simply green, and you say, only if I allocate capital to such and such a sector or such and such an idea, then that's going to be green. Well, what do you do if it seems to be a good idea to go from dark brown to light brown or even from brown to olive? So you're doing something better. You're going from a bad place to a less bad place or an, an absolute, I'm going to just give some fictional numbers, you might go from minus a million to minus 100,000. That's still a delta of plus 900,000. It may well want to be a project that you would want to support or a company that you would want to support or an investment that you'd want to support. But in a narrow definition of, of green, it's not going to make that taxonomy. So it won't get that kind of sustainable investment if you're using that kind of taxonomy under that allocation framework. And therefore, in actual fact, that sort of framework may not be so helpful in terms of allocating capital to real world projects which are, uh, are making a difference. And that's over a climate taxonomy, but you might have social uh, and the other like. So people who criticize or would want a, a better form of doing that would say that actually that's where you want sophisticated uh, investors to do that in order to allocate a capital. Advocates for a regulatory regime would say, well, there are some parties, particularly uh, retail, who wouldn't understand that. You need some guidelines. Otherwise, if you don't have any definitions, then it's all as a free fall. How do we know what people are doing? So it's a really challenging environment on all of those two or three sort of blobs. And uh, we're trying to work it out through the system at the moment. Okay, Ben, I realize we've been um, talking for quite a while, um, but one, one last question, if I can, which is, um, as someone who studied the um, CFA ESG certificate, read the wonderful wealth of information in the book, I was just curious about um, what you, when, you were, when you were writing your part of it, what you hoped um, people would come away from, from having um, done the course. Well, before I answer that, I should ask you, what did you come away from? What did you hope to find and what did you learn? <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll be honest, because when, when, I, when I did it, I was, um, I, I was thinking about the, the Dunning-Kruger curve and um, I hope, hoping I wasn't on the very worst part of that, thinking that I knew far more than I did whilst being incredibly ignorant. And um, so I, I, I really wanted a course which would just open my eyes to the amount that I needed to really you know, understand, not tell me everything, but to, you know, illuminate this, you know, the, the ESG world to me a bit so that I could appreciate my ignorance more than anything else and have, have, have a foundation from which to move forward. And I think, I think it gave me a lot of that. It, um, 
it because I mean it's it's very extensive and it covers a it covers a lot and um it's portioned up into lots of um lot, lots of pieces and ESG integration which I believe is um a chapter that um yeah uh, you you wrote I I, I found I, I, that was my most interesting chapter but I I'm very interested in investments so that was kind of you know the, I felt I got some real meat there. So you found the book good, and you would say that interviewing me for my chapter. <laughs> so it is designed more for institutional investors than the person in the street. But the, there are several things I want, want people to get from it. But if I were to choose one, it's an understanding of a wide variety of tools and techniques that people can use to understand businesses and assets better. And like any tools, hammers and the like, you could use them for a variety of things. Don't think that everything is just a nail. You could use them uh, for however that might fit within your investment process or your investment thesis. So it's not uh, prescriptive. In fact, you could use this in if you have social conservative values and you wanted techniques and things which would align with the way that you view the world and investment processes, you could have more... Uh, progressive or uh, climate focused type of ideas and thinking. And that would also be techniques and tools that you could use. So in that sense, we wanted to give uh, a lot of the cutting edge tools that practitioners are thinking about, how to think about these type of things and how to integrate that into your own investment process. Ben, thank you so much. Um, and for all your really thoughtful, um, rich answers as well, that was great. Um, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much.